0: The gospel of Christ is the greatest news the world has ever received. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15.3 Angels first brought this good news to shepherds by night saying, I bring you good news. The Savior Christ the Lord has been born. And then the angels, along with the multitude of heavenly hosts, gave glory to God because of this good news. The gospel tells us that our sins are forgiven, death is defeated, and the righteousness of Christ has been imputed on us. The wrath of God was satisfied in the death of Christ, and death was conquered by Christ's resurrection. Though sufficient for all, it is not applied to all. Though it is a free gift to those who believe, its cost is great. It it requires radical self-denial. Those who receive this gospel must be willing to have a target placed on their back and suffer the opposition of the devil. Those who have received this gift must relinquish everything they have and all they desire for their Master and Lord. Jesus left the glories of heaven to be obedient to his Father. Obedient that required suffering to the point of death. So we too must suffer and in doing so identify with him in his suffering. The history of the church is stained with the blood of faithful saints. Saints who were willing to pay with their very lives the great cost of this gospel. They lived and died worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. My goal this morning is to call you to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. And to show you from Paul's letter to the Philippians how to live By using the examples of Christ, Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. Will you pray with me? Lord, I stand here fully aware that I am completely incapable of doing justice to your holy word. At one time, I was once an enemy of God. Deserving your eternal wrath. But by your grace, I've been granted eternal life so that I can stand here as one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. By your spirit today, please teach us to live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. Amen. I do not want to spend a lot of time this morning re-examining chapter one. You can go online and listen to that sermon. However, I do want to briefly point back to it to show you Paul's example of living worthy worthy of the gospel of Christ. Last time in chapter 1, we learned that Paul was writing this letter from a a Roman prison. Uh, Paul was thanking God for the Philippians and thanking the Philippians for their concern for him, as well as their faithfulness and prayer for him and their support of him while he was in prison. He reported back to them, how his imprisonment was actually best uh, because the gospel was spreading by him being jailed. He goes on to tell them that he knows that if he remains in prison or is set free, that Christ will be magnified. Paul told the Philippian church that for him to live is Christ and to die is gain, and that he was torn between seeing Jesus face to face and being with him and of remaining in the flesh and laboring for fruitful gain, all the while knowing that for the time being he would remain in the flesh for the sake of the church. As we look back at chapter 1, we see Paul living worthy of the gospel by his willingness to live or die for the gospel. And later on, we will see him living worthy by counting others more significant than himself. So chapter 1 ends where we will begin today. Let's look at chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And not frightened in anything by your opponents, it is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but for your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Here, Paul is not making a recommendation. He is commanding that the church only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. When he says only, he means that they are to live exclusively for the gospel. They are to live distinctive lives, totally different from that of the world. Paul is not giving them any wiggle room here. They are not to be wishy-washy in their convictions and lifestyle. They were not given the option to pick and to choose what commandments they will obey. They were to be markedly different and to stand out from the other citizens of the city. The phrase translated here in the ESV, manner of life, is the Greek word politeo. From this word, we get the words politics, citizen, and the word polite. Polite. So the Apostle is talking here, not just about behavior, but also about our citizenship. We Christians are to live as citizens of a heavenly kingdom. In that day, being a Roman citizen came with special rights and privileges, like tax exemptions and a multitude of legal protections. Some were born citizens, while others bought and paid for their citizenship. By the first century... When Paul was writing this letter, Philippi had long been a part of the Roman Empire. The citizens of the uh, city of Philippi were proud of their heritage and gladly and boldly proclaimed, Caesar is Lord. Here, Paul is reminding the church that their citizenship is of another kingdom. They now belong to the kingdom of God. They were citizens of Roman Philippi, for sure. However, their life and their allegiance belong to heaven. So when Paul declares, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, he is saying everything about you, your mind, your spirit, and your body are to stand out as distinct from that of this world. Your conduct, while here in this world, is to reflect your identity in Christ. Like the Philippians, you and I must strive for the faith of the gospel. We must be citizens of God's kingdom and declare that Jesus is Lord. So how are we and how were the Philippians supposed to do this? Well, Paul gives us three ways. The first way is that we stand firm in one spirit. The Apostle Paul is using military terminology here. Standing firm gives the idea of a soldier's duty in battle. Soldiers were trained to hold their ground in the battle. They were never to cut and run or retreat when the fighting got hard and difficult. He was instead to hold his ground and fight to the death if necessary. Never giving up any ground to the enemy. To give way would frustrate the battle plan and inflict harm on his fellow soldiers. Like a soldier, the Christian is never supposed to fight or stand firm alone. We are to stand firm by the power of the Spirit, united with the rest of the church. Secondly, Paul says that we are to be standing firm in one mind. This can also be said to be of one accord or of one soul. Simply put, The believer is not a one-man army, but a body. There is no such thing in all of Scripture as Lone Ranger Christians. We are to be anchored together as one body with one mind, one heartbeat, one soul for the advancement of the gospel. Next, Paul encourages uh, the believers to strive side by side. The only way for the church in Philippi and for the church today to accomplish this is to spend time together worshiping the Lord. It would be impossible for them and for us to be of one mind and one spirit if we neglect spending time in fellowship and worship of God gathered together side by side. We are to do battle alongside our brothers and sisters. We are to have one another's back. We are to encourage one another. We are to care for one another. We are to mend one another's wounds. We are to mourn with those who mourn and to weep with those who weep. And it is absolutely impossible for us to do this if we are not regularly and consistently meeting and worshiping together. Paul now continues to uh, the use of military terminology, by saying strive together. This means that the members of the church are to be like soldiers on a unified front. They are to strive together with the same goal, obedience to their Lord, and helping for one another. We see these one-anothers, and as the body are to interact with the entire Bible. Now, if you're a member of Great Plains Reformed Baptist Church, you are very aware of these one another because you had to agree to them in our church covenant to become a member. Now, I'm going to read our church covenant. And as I do, listen to the one another's that were taken from the Scripture and see how we are commanded to live worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then perhaps you will understand how we, as Great Plains Reformed Baptist Church, Can stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side. All right, so Great Plains Reform Baptist Church Church Covenant says this We, the members of Great Plains Reform Baptist Church, do hereby covenant with each other before God to be family, to be committed to each other. to love, accept, and forgive each other until death, or God's call, causes us to part. We are to live in Jesus Christ and take his commands seriously, help one another grow toward Christian maturity by bearing one another's burdens, encouraging one another, exhorting one another, praying for one another, confessing our sins to one another, speaking the truth in love to one another, admonishing one another, building up one another, teaching one another, comforting one another, submitting to one another, serving one another, patiently bearing with one another, being hospitable to one another, greeting one another, living in peace with one another, regarding one another as more important than ourselves, caring for one another, exercising our spiritual gifts to serve one another, being kind and tender-hearted to one another, being devoted to one another, accepting one another, forgiving one another, loving one another. We invite fellow members to pray for us, teach us, correct us, or rebuke us if necessary in a spirit of gentleness and humility should we stray from our Lord's commands. Because the thing we desire most in life is to serve Christ. We voluntarily submit ourselves to one another and to the discipline of the church. Church discipline will always be for the loving purpose of restoration. Restoration to fellowship with God and with the covenant community. And it will always be done in accordance with Matthew eighteen fifteen through 22 bringing honor to the body of Christ by maintaining a good testimony. We enter into this covenant because we have the common purpose of obeying Jesus Christ and because we believe that we need one another's help to do this. As believers and disciples of Jesus Christ, we have entered into a covenant relationship with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, with the God who reveals himself in Jesus since the blessing and the promises of the covenant have been freely extended and given to us out of wonder, love, thanksgiving, and reverence. We hereby accept and take up the covenant responsibilities that go with such a privilege. This is our reasonable service, and we should do nothing less. God help us all. We rely on His grace and hold fast to His promise, that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Did you hear the one and others in our covenant? Lastly, uh, Paul tells the Philippians uh, that to live worthy is to not be frightened by anything their opponent's threat. When we live united as a body in Christ and by the power of the Spirit... There is no room for fear. Paul said it best back in chapter 1 when he said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And now he gives us the signs of worthy living. Not only has God granted you and I the ability to believe in Jesus, but he has also granted you and I the privilege and the ability to suffer for Christ's sake. Not very often do we see suffering as a gift from God. In fact, we usually view suffering as punishment from God. Punishment because we haven't performed well enough to please Him. Too often, we believe that if we will live right, do do all the right things, then we won't suffer. We wrongly view suffering as coming from a mean and malicious God. When in truth, it is a gift from a merciful, loving God suffering fulfills the purpose of our salvation christ suffered for our sake when he humbled himself and gave himself up for us he humbled himself to identify with us in our weakness so now when we suffer for his sake we identify with him in his suffering in suffering well the gospel of Christ. Is publicly declared and God is glorified. And this brings us to chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love. Being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Here, Paul shifts gears. After telling the church to stand united and unified against their opponents, He now tells them to stand unified against divisions from within by humbling themselves. But first, Paul reminded the Philippians of God's grace in their lives. Verse 1 says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection, sympathy. The word if used here can also be translated as because, or since. So this will be read, since there is encouragement in Christ, since there is comfort and love, since there is participation in the Spirit, because there is affection and sympathy. Paul is talking here, not, or he's talking here about the realities of the Christian life and not just the possibilities. The first reality Paul mentions is encouragement in Christ. The word Encouragement means to come alongside another to help them. Our Lord left the glories of heaven in order to come alongside us in our Christian life. By faith, we, like the Philippians, receive comfort from Him. To this, from 2 Corinthians chapter one, verse three through. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Jesus Christ is not only the sole source of our salvation, but He is the only true source of our comfort in affliction. The next reality of God's grace in the life of the Christian is comfort from love. This means to console a trembling heart, and this is synonymous with encouragement in Christ. Paul continues on and says, "If there is any participation in the Spirit, the Greek word used here for fellowship is the word koinonia, and it means partnership between two people. The word was used to describe people, uh, used to describe two people who went into business partnership together." Paul was reminding the Philippians that, uh, of the fellowship that they had with the Holy Spirit. The word koinonia used here can also mean a common possession as a result of an inheritance. This is where every partner was part, of, part owner of the whole property. Because of our union with Christ, we have a great inheritance in the, king, in the coming kingdom. But also the individual dwelling of the Holy Spirit. Hear what Jesus said in John fourteen, sixteen through 17. I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you lastly paul writes about the affection and sympathy that are in christ oh saints look at the cross and see in christ the affection and sympathy that god has for sinners christ demonstrated this affection and sympathy when he endured god's wrath in our place you and i along with the philippians by faith in jesus christ have received this affection and sympathy. Paul states that uh, since these things about Christ are true, we have an obligation to live worthy, uh, to live as worthy citizens of God's kingdom. But what does this look like, and how are we to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ? In a word, we are told here to live humbly. But what does that look like? Paul says in verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But before that, he says to have the same mind and the same love. Our focus for everything we do and our reason for everything that we do is the glory of our Lord. We must all be of the same mind and have the same love. Our common goal is the spread of the gospel of Christ. However, When we become selfish and conceited, our eyes become blind to the glory of God, and we make a God of ourselves. We then begin to be lured and enticed by our own selfish desire to the hurt of our brothers and sisters in the Lord. When we become selfish and conceited, the spread of the gospel message is stunted That's why Paul tells the Philippians not to be selfish or conceited, but rather, he says, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. We are told to count others more significant than ourselves. This means that we are to add up the cost of worthy living and make sure that when everything has been added and subtracted, we end up at the bottom of the ledger. Our lives should be lived out in such a way that we pour ourselves out for one another, we are to love one another by looking out for one another's interests. We Christians should never take advantage of each other; rather, look for ways to further our brothers and sisters' best interests. Paul was a man who practiced what he preached, and we have a great example of him counting others more significant than himself. Uh, turn in your Bible bibles to the letter of. Philemon, if you get to Hebrews, you're too far, right before Hebrews. Philemon. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our fellow worker, and Aphea, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and much comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though, I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. Yet, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. forever. no longer as a bond servant, but more than a bond servant, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But now, much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, Write this with my own hand. I will repay. To say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers... I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you in spirit. Did you notice in this letter how Paul looked out for the interests of these two men? and he, how he counted each of them more significant than himself. He supplied a runaway slave with a home and a family, and then he told Philemon to charge it all to him. This is what it looks like to look out for one another's interests and to put ourself at the bottom of the ledger. This is what being a citizen of God's kingdom means. And we have just been shown what it looks like to live worthy of the gospel by the Apostle Paul. But now Paul shows us the supreme example of living worthy for the gospel. Turn back to Philippians chapter 2, be in verses 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul is exhorting the Philippians to live worthy by focusing their eyes on Jesus Christ. He tells them to have the mind of Christ. Then he explains to them what he means. Christ did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Christ did not take advantage of his rights and benefits of being God. He is God and has never ceased being God. However, he let go of those rights and lived in humility. Listen to this from Matthew three thirteen through 15. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John, to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, humbled himself and was baptized by one of his creatures. And listen to this from John 6, uh, 14 and 15. When the people saw uh, the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Jesus had just finished feeding over 5,000 people with only five loaves and two fish. These people knew and understood that a miracle worker and a very powerful man was in their presence, and they wanted to make him king. But Jesus left to be by himself. He refused to take his rightful position as king and instead humbled himself. Paul continues to explain to the Philippians how Jesus humbled himself. Not only did Christ not count equality with God something to be grasped, but he also emptied himself by taking on human flesh and obeying to the point of death. The first way that Christ humbled himself was by taking on human flesh. He left heaven and actually put on flesh. He came into this world as a baby. He, the incarnate, took on the nature of a man, yet he remained fully God. The second example that Paul gives of Christ's humbleness is that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. While on the earth, Christ lived a life of perfect obedience to his Father, obedience that led him to the cross. The Romans looked at death on a cross as the highest form of humiliation. Christ experienced this form of humiliation by dying on one of these Roman crosses. However, he did it in obedience to his Father. Hear what Jesus says in John 10, 17 through 18. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay my life down that I may up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Christ was obedient, not under compulsion, but he willingly and joyfully humbled himself and laid down his life in this way. Verses six through eight give us the of Christ's humiliation, by him putting on flesh on a cross. Then in verses 9 through 11, we see the glory and power of the risen cross. Excuse me, of the risen Christ. God highly exalted him, not just exalted, but highly exalted. He holds the highest place of power of importance and prestige. He is exalted above any other position of power in the world even of Caesar. His name is above every name, higher than the mayor, higher than the governor, higher than the president, and yes, much higher than Caesar. His name is so preeminent that at the mere mention of his name, every knee will bow down to him. Every tongue will, will proclaim, Jesus is Lord. Yes, even Caesars. And this brings us to verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, for His good pleasure. Paul just finished showing us the humility of Christ and how he lived a worthy life of obedience to the Father. He begins by using the word, therefore, to point the, to point the Philippians directly back to Christ's life and in light of how they and we are to live. Just as our Lord humbled himself and obeyed, we too must humble ourselves And obey our Lord's commands. We we demonstrate our obedience. By working out our own salvation. With fear and trembling. Let me be clear. What Paul is not saying here. Is that we must work to earn our own personal salvation. Our salvation was purchased by Christ. When he humbled himself on a cross. But he is saying that we do have personal responsibility. Listen to this from Steve Lawson. In pursuing obedience, Paul urges the Philippians to work out their salvation. They are commanded to put effort into achieving their salvation. In the Bible, salvation is represented in three ways, as past, present, and future. These three designations involving Uh, Involve justification, sanctification, and glorification. In justification, believers are saved immediately from the penalty of sin. In sanctification, they are saved progressively from the power and practice of sin. In glorification, they are saved ultimately from the presence of sin. The mention of salvation in this verse points to Uh, Sanctification in daily Christian living. They were not to work for their salvation, but to work out their salvation. And just how were they to work out their salvation? Flippantly? No. Haphazardly? No. They were to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. That means to be in reverence and awe of their God. We cannot remain passive or dormant. No matter what, no matter your spiritual maturity, you must work hard and spend the time necessary to pursue personal holiness. No longer can you say, let go and let God. You are responsible for your spiritual growth, and you will be held accountable. You are to work out what God has already worked in. even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. To do all things is all-encompassing for the Christian. It includes work, home, school, church, marriage, parenting, as well as friendships. Every one of these areas will be difficult at some point. How do I know this? Because every one of these things involves at least one selfish sinner. And when these difficulties arise, we are to handle them without grumbling. We are not to murmur and whisper, and we are not to be disputing and contentious. Why? because we are a witness and a reflection of the glory and light of Christ in a dark and twisted world. We must not allow blessing and cursing to come from the same mouth. Hear what James says in chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. Yet it boasts great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed, has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. This is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. We are commanded to be a holy people in the midst of an unholy world. And we can only accomplish this by holding fast to the gospel of Christ. This brings us to verse 19 through 30. I hope, therefore, to send him, just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord, that shortly I myself also. I have thought it necessary to send to you, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all, and has been distressed, because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill. risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Paul has instructed the church to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. He has called us to be citizens of the kingdom of God while still citizens in this world. We have been commanded this morning to live lives worthy of the gospel. We have seen the example of Paul living a worthy life by counting others more significant than himself. We have seen the example of Christ living a worthy life by his humility and obedience to his Father. And now we are given another example by the lives of two ordinary men who lived authentic lives only for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like Paul, Timothy had genuine concern for the welfare of the church in Philippi. In this concern, Paul and Timothy were of one mind and in one love for these people. Timothy had been tested by fire and shown worthy of the kingdom of God. Timothy had stayed the course. He didn't run away as others had when things got hard. He had remained faithful to the Lord by being a faithful son to Paul. Timothy was working out his salvation in service to his Lord and living worthy of the gospel. Next, Paul gives us the example set forth by Epaphroditus. Paul used five words to describe this man. Brother, worker, soldier, messenger, and minister. These five descriptive words take us back to the military terminology that we saw in chapter 1. Epaphroditus demonstrated for the church what it means to live worthy by standing firm in the face of death, coming alongside others in battle against the opposition of the gospel. Men like Epaphroditus are to be welcomed and honored. Men like Timothy, Epaphroditus, the Apostle Paul, and ultimately Jesus are our examples of only Living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. The command to only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel was not just for the church in the first century. It is for the church even today. So I ask you, church, how are you doing? Is it your desire to live worthy for the kingdom, for what you believe? is the glorification of Christ and the love of his bride primary goal are you working out your own salvation with fear and trembling are you putting in the work by praying studying the bible and obeying its commands are you pursuing a life worthy Let's pray.